All of Spiked's articles and podcasts and essays are free, and we want to keep it that way. But to do so, we ask our loyal supporters, if they can afford it, to chip in, ideally with a regular donation. It might not sound like much, but donating as little as £5 per month can have a transformative impact on our work. For less than the cost of about two copies of The Guardian these days, you can help Spikes become bigger and better and bolshier than ever. So if you like our work and want to support us, please do consider signing up. Just go to spiked-online.com and click on the big red donate button in the top right corner. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me as ever this week, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the media's handling of coronavirus, the government's contract tracing app and the turning tide against trans activism. The UK crossed the grim milestone of 20,000 deaths in hospitals. Look at this moron. I know you don't like me calling them morons. I hate But they're morons. Over 100 frontline health workers have now died. Would you accept that that figure is too high? I wonder if you will take this opportunity to apologise to those families of loved ones who died in care homes because the government didn't properly protect them. It's fair to say that the media have not had a good war. The media have come in for enormous criticism from all angles during the coronavirus pandemic. Poll after poll shows extremely low levels of trust in journalism. A recent Sky News poll found that 64% of the public don't trust TV journalists on coronavirus, while 72% don't trust newspaper journalists. Trust in institutions like the NHS is much higher, and even leading politicians, who we usually love to hate, are more trusted than the media – Tom, what do you think's going on? Well, I think on on one level, you know, lack of trust in journalism and journalists is nothing new, um, nor is a lot of the things that are irritating us about the media at the moment. But I guess coronavirus has kind of thrown a lot of it into sharp relief and found a lot of the kind of preoccupations and the tendencies. It's made them feel even more trivial and grating and kind of potentially dangerous in some respects in in given the kind of situation that we find ourselves in. So there's the usual stuff that a lot of people have talked about, the gotcha questions, you know, the tendency towards kind of doomsday, worst case scenarios, apocalypticism, the tendency to, again, kind of feel like they're just kind of trying to score cheap points against the government, the sort of sensationalised nature, the sort of tabloid moralisation that we saw in relation to the kind of covid phenomenon. But I think two things that would be worth talking about in a little bit more depth, I think one of which is the, is the groupthink, which has been on display from the media so far. Um, now, that's kind of inevitable with any group of people. You know, the lobby in particular, in terms of the people who in normal times would be working in Parliament, who are reporters for national newspapers and broadcast journalists, who are very much covering political issues. You know, they are, from broadly speaking, the same layer of society. They're often from the same universities. They're often given to the same kind of little fixations day to day. And that does have a bearing on the kind of questions that get asked inevitably. You know, the kind of benign aspect to it being people just, as many people have seen at these press conferences, getting up one after another and asking the same question about the same issue, whether it's PPE Mm. or it's care homes or whatever, because they all feel that they need to get onto that particular issue of the day. That can be quite grating. But on a broader level, and I think we saw this in the run up to the lockdown, was that it felt for all intents and purposes that they had taken the same kind of reading of the situation, that lockdown as soon as possible and as hard as possible was the right policy, and were all just effectively advocating in all of those press conferences for that policy. You know, in the days running up to the lockdown being announced, it was pretty much every single question was, when are we going to do what Italy's done? When are we going to do what France does? And I don't think that's necessarily a good 
place to be. And I think it just taps into the other aspect of it, which I think is important, which we've seen through the Brexit process, but also coming more into relief now, is the way in which the media has started to kind of think of itself as the opposition, the real opposition, the fact that it's not just kind of holding government to account, but it's almost starting to conceive of itself as a kind of political actor in that respect. And I think Mm. that can be really dangerous because on the one hand, no one is saying that the media should give the government an easy ride, that they should ask them fluff questions, that given the situation that we're in, that they should ease up on the scrutiny and all just back the government. No one's saying that. But at the same time, I think if you're constantly have that kind of quite antagonistic, almost semi-partisan relationship, then it does start to skew your reporting inevitably it does start to skew your priorities and as i say when it almost feels like they're actually also advocating certain policies um it can mean that questions about for instance the costs of the lockdown the adverse consequences the policy decisions which are really important but aren't really being focused on for instance the issues with care homes that you've raised on spike this week just kind of get lost in the mix because on the one hand whilst you know there's a there becomes a point at which it feels like certain journalists are building a case against the government rather than actually holding them to account. And that can be a big problem because whilst they are there to, again, ask the government tough questions, they're also there to get at the truth and constantly just pursuing the most kind of salient point of the day to try and score points against the government is not necessarily always going to get you there. Ella? What's really frustrating is when faced with criticism, lots of the sort of big names in mainstream journalism get quite defensive. Mm. You know, there was this incident on social media when Konstantin Kissin, who's a comedian, you know, did a thread that was sort of criticising the media quite constructively. And he had, had a point in terms of what you want the media to do in a situation like this. And it provoked sort of like several blogs, several retaliations, like this kind of big storm and people were feeling very defensive about it. But the most annoying thing is that they play members of the, as it's called, mainstream media sometimes disparagingly, do this really frustrating thing when on the one hand they say it's not our fault that we ask these salacious questions. You know, we we live in an era of 24-hour news and our readers just want a headline. And, you know, it's your fault, the public, because <laughs> you need to consume this very highly intellectual stuff that we give you very quickly. And so we have to dumb it down and repeat things and make everything a sort of semi-scandal. And then on the other hand, they say, but it's, of course, our job to hold the government to account and we play a very central role in democracy. And, you know, pick one side. The two are in conflict. You can't do both. And actually, the trend that's happened in politics recently has shown that the public is very intensely engaged in political discourse. I mean, the figures for the numbers of people who are watching these press conferences every day is 8 million plus. Mm. I mean, we're all tuning in. We're all reading the newspapers. We're all kind of hanging on every politician's every word. And you're in this very difficult position where essentially our only interaction with the government and with politicians at this point is through the media. And they just are not taking that responsibility seriously. And obviously at the background of all of this is it's necessary for a democracy to have a free press Mm. and a press that takes that responsibility of being a voice for the public and a means of questioning the government for on behalf of the public. But I just don't buy this sort of idea that so many journalists are putting out now that they're under pressure from, you know, either sales of newspapers or the influx of the pressure on social media, that they have to turn into sort of soundbite journalists, because actually the public are a lot smarter than that. And more often than not, I think they're displaying a prejudice about what they think readers are rather than actually answering what readers want. And the the defensiveness, I think, is is one of the most extraordinary things. You know, Adam Bolton mm. said that basically all criticism of the media 
was just pandering to populists. Lewis Goodall, you know, from BBC Newsnight said it was just a prejudice that the public didn't trust the media. And he did this while quote tweeting a poll, which showed that less than half of all people trust the media. There's been a really strange focus on the word collapse because some people have suggested trust in the media has collapsed. And so many journalists are trying to make a point that, oh no, people have always distrusted the media, therefore it's nothing new, as if that's something to be proud of. I mean, it's it's quite extraordinary. One of the other kind of tenets similar to them trying to be the kind of new official opposition is that they also, you know, this is clearest, I suppose, with most with the BBC and some of the more kind of patrician mm. papers. They also present themselves as a kind of media equivalent of the NHS, as um, Mick Hume put it in Spiked. There is a just kind of incredibly pompous attitude sometimes um, about how the media talk about the importance of their work and their particular lines of questioning and how, you know, mm-hmm. they really do like to see themselves in the action much more than, you know, really most of us don't want to hear about what journalists thinks. We want them to, you know, relay the facts, give us some good analysis, but not not kind of overly emote about every single statistic or or news story. Mm. Tom, did you want to come in? No, I just think there's there's kind of two parts to this as it strikes me. One of which is the relationship between the media and the government, which I think has become quite dysfunctional in, in many sorts of ways, you know. And especially in this moment of seeing questions like from Channel 4 News in the course of these press conferences saying, you know, are you now going to apologise for all the people who have died in the care sector? And you think this kind of journalism, this kind of point scoring just feels so utterly irrelevant right now and it's really not useful. The, the other thing is that the problem is, is not necessarily that we're saying they're going too kind of, you know, hard on the government. It's that they're just myopically obsessed with certain certain things, yeah. almost to the exclusion of other incredibly important things. And that's a real problem. So again, day to day, it could be the lockdown, it could be the question of PPE, it could be this, it could be that. But there are a whole kind of questions, you know, the economic issue has been completely sidelined in this discussion. The knock-on effects in relation to the lockdown, in relation to health, even in terms of cancer patients and people in care homes dying of non-COVID issues. You know, all of this is there, but it's relegated to a kind of second order issue. And I think that's a problem. The other thing, and you just touched on this, Fraser, is the relationship between the media and the public and the way they've now demonstrated what they feel that relationship is which is one that is incredibly patrician and I think that is something that also colours their coverage you know there's a kind of sense and you saw this pre-coronavirus as well that for instance airing slightly more dissident or against the consensus views on say the epidemiology or on any of these issues is seen as something kind of a little bit dangerous that's why you've not really seen much of it and it's fallen to alternative media and online media to give platforms to these different kinds of voices, even within the scientific community. Because with that Adam Bolton kind of line in in mind of talking about you can't pander to the audience, there is this sense of, despite the fact they're trying to present themselves as very high-minded and wanting to raise discussion, there's a tendency within some of them is that they worry that if you did actually have a debate out about some of these issues, that the people might get the wrong idea. Therefore, Mm. they have to act as a kind of filter. So I think that's quite concerning. And the other thing is, obviously, the media is going for a tough time at the moment insofar as ad revenues are plunging, loads of them are being furloughed. Obviously, there was a big issue with how the industry funds itself before all of this and it is looking very likely that for a lot of these titles coronavirus is going to be the thing that pushes it over a cliff but at the same time they do have to recognize that one thing it's not irrelevant and it's actually important for the media to make a case for itself to the public that it answers some of those criticisms that it looks a little bit more deeply at some of the things being said rather than just deflecting them because otherwise they're not going to be able to make the case for why it is that they are so important as they are in a democracy and in a free country.
You're listening to the Spike podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Millions of people will soon be asked to download an app to help limit the spread of coronavirus. The NHS says that its contract tracing app should be up and running within weeks. China, South Korea, Singapore, Israel and others have already been making use of apps in the fight against COVID-19. Meanwhile, Google and Apple have also worked together to produce an interface for COVID apps. Tamandra Harkness is joining us down the line to talk about these apps for this section. Tamandra is the author of Big Data, Does Size Matter? and is a member of the Royal Statistical Society's working group on data ethics. Tamandra, first of all, can you tell us a bit about what different countries are doing with these apps and you know how they work? Well, there's there's two different uses of the apps, really. One is as a supplement to manual contact tracing. So in countries like South Korea and Singapore, if you are diagnosed with COVID-19, a human being will actually sit down and go through with you where you have been during the pre-symptomatic period when you might have been infectious and try and work out who you might have infected and then get in touch with those people and warn them that they might have been infected. And so although Singapore does use an app, it's really a supplement to the manual contact tracing. But some other countries are using apps as the primary way of trying to do the same job. The idea being that it's very time consuming to have a human being. And also, you don't necessarily know who you've been in contact with. If you've been on a train or in a busy shop, you don't know the identities of all the people you've been near. Whereas an app can help identify where you've been or who you've been close to. And those are the two main types of app. There's one that goes on location using GPS and your phone's records of how it's connected to the network. And that will basically say where you have been. So the app can help somebody identify what other phones have been in that same location at the same time. And maybe even alert the the places and say, you've had somebody here who might be infectious, do a deep clean. And the other type is to use Bluetooth, which is a technology designed only to communicate with devices that are within a few metres of your phone. And so in a way, that's ideal because that's proximity tracing. That's working at which phones have been near your phone and therefore which people might have been near you when you were in the infectious stage. And the idea of that is that your phone can upload the data about which devices it's been near and those devices can then be warned that, again, they might have been near somebody infectious. Google and Apple have started working together in this regard. They're pushing for what they call less centralised versions of these apps. What does, what does that mean? Well, basically, there's, there's two different ways of using the Bluetooth. Both of them work in a similar way in that the devices running the app will exchange little codes, just saying, oh, here's a code that says uh, I was here on this day and anyone within broadcasting distance of me will pick up this code and store it. So each app, each phone, if you like, ends up with a little file of sent codes and received codes. And it's not immediately obvious 
which device has sent them. You can change them regularly, you can change them once a day or more often so that it's not easy necessarily to identify a phone from a code, but you can make a record of which, which phones are near each other. This is how Singapore's app Trace Together works. And what happens is that all the codes get uploaded to a central database. So if you are diagnosed with COVID-19, then all your codes get logged in this database from the relevant time period as these codes might have been infectious. And then they match those up with other devices that received those codes to warn them that they might have been infected. But you can also do this in a decentralised way, which is what Google and Apple want to do, where all the codes stay on the user's phone until somebody is diagnosed as infectious and then only those codes get uploaded. There's not necessarily identifying who the person is, but every other app user can just check in regularly with that database. But all the matching happens in the phone. So it's only the phone of the possibly infected person that knows that they might have been infected. The central database, or whoever's running the central database, in our case, NHSX, would not know who are these other phones that are possibly matched because all the matching happens in the phones. So that's a lot more anonymous. That's That means that nobody has the whole picture. Only the individual person who might have been infected knows that they might have been infected and the central database doesn't know who those people are or necessarily even how many of them there are. Ella. Tamandra, I wanted to ask what the privacy implications are of this because obviously it sounds like a brilliant piece of tech that if it can get us out of the lockdown, for example, faster, then you might think at this point I'll do anything. But by it building on, you know, already the kind of concerns we have with the information that the government and tech companies hold on us, is there any justification to feeling perhaps a little bit conspiratorially that, you know, this is an encroachment upon our freedom and, you know, big data and all of that? Should we be worried? (laughs) Well, it's, I mean, it's quite a funny situation to be in where Google and Apple have apparently ganged up to defend our privacy <laughs> against our own elected representatives. I mean, that's, that's a very bizarre situation, just shows what weird times we're living in. But in a way, that, that is what's happening because Google and Apple have said, we want to, basically, we, we want to rewrite our operating systems to enable these apps to be used all over the world. But we want to, make them work with the minimum amount of data being centralised. And you can see they might have very different reasons for doing that. But one of the better reasons is that however democratic or trustworthy your own government is, they don't necessarily have to have access to all this information. And when you think about it, you might go, oh, well, it doesn't say where I've been, so it doesn't matter. But it does say who you've been near. Mm. And that could be very personal information, both for you and for the other people that you're near. I mean, they don't necessarily want that information shared. So the fact that you could run these apps without centralising the data is a great opportunity to be able to, exactly as you say, facilitate freeing up from lockdown a bit, identifying people who might have infected without necessarily handing over a lot of personal information. Now, just to defend NHSX for a moment, the reason they have been working on the other basis, so much more like Singapore, exchanging these tokens but collecting centrally all the information in one place, is they want to have this overview. They want to have an idea of, well, how many people are being infected? 
How many people are affecting other people? How fast is it happening? How fast is the disease spreading? So that if it looked like we were headed for another upsurge of the disease, they would have some advance warning and they might be able to say, oh, well, let's let's tighten up the restrictions again before that happens. So I don't think you necessarily have to see there are sinister motives for wanting to do this. But nevertheless, it is a bit of a data grab. It is saying, well, we want all of this information and then we'll decide what to do with it, as opposed to saying we want the minimum amount of data that it would take to make this work. And then if we want more information about location or so, we will explicitly ask you for it uh, and then you'll know what's going on. At the moment, NHSX have said that they want to use a centralised version of the Bluetooth app, Mm. but it's not really clear how that would work with Google and Apple. Mm. So I think it's still possible they might do what Germany have done, which is start off in that direction, then say, okay, you know what, we will go with the decentralised version and then we will ask people for other data on top. I, I think that's still possible. Tom? Tamandra, I just wanted to ask about um, whether or not this technology is actually going to work in, in practice, particularly because from what I've read, it's going to require quite a high level of take-up from the general public, from the NHS app, for instance, for it to really have that kind of effect. Countries like Singapore finding only kind of 20% take-up. So I was just wondering, you know, how much do you think this is going to be a success or is it always going to be more of that kind of in-person contact tracing that you started off talking about that's going to be making the difference here? Well, yes. I mean, you're right. There are a lot of hurdles to it. One is that it slightly relies on testing. And at the moment, the UK NHSX app is proposing to make it a self-diagnosis thing. So there'll be a little questionnaire about symptoms. And then if you report enough of the symptoms, it'll say, oh yeah, you've probably got it. Uh, We better flag you as infectious. So that is quite rough and ready. I mean, that lays itself open to a hypochondriac saying, I've got a cough, so everyone who's been on a train with me is now going to be told to self-isolate. Or, you know, or a teenager who's been told to go back to school going, I don't want to go back to school. I'm going to report that I've got symptoms and the whole school will have to be closed down again. So it's very much about the context in which it's used. If we were doing what Singapore essentially does, which is the one-to-one contact tracing, and incidentally, I mean, they have access to a lot of data to them. The app is very much just an extra. They are already allowed to take other data off your phone, like like the locations of where you've been and all sorts of things. So you know, this is the icing on the cake for them. It would be interesting to see whether the UK would have contact tracing systems that were similarly intrusive, whether people would put up with that here. It's clearly more effective to have individual contact tracing because you can also do things like say, oh, well, you appear to be close to this phone all the time oh, it's just your next door neighbour. So maybe it's picking up the fact that you're on opposite sides of a thin wall or something. And the other thing is without the the testing infrastructure, it's going to be very rough and ready. It's going to be very much on the basis of what we were doing before the lockdown, really, where people who went ill were asked to stay at home for two weeks, not necessarily even knowing whether they were ill. So you can see that an app would, would supplement that, but it's not on its own going to solve the problem. What it could do, though, if enough people take it up, and that's a big if because not everybody has a smartphone, not everybody has a smartphone that runs on Bluetooth. In order to get that effectiveness, epidemiologists have estimated that 56% of all people would need to have the app, which would work at about 80% of smartphone users. So that is quite a big ask to, to get that many people to be consistently running the app 
And again, that also slightly depends on the eventual form of it, that it will be convenient to run. You won't have to leave your phone on and unlocked all the time. But what it could do, I think, is two things. It could slow the spread of the disease. So just make it slightly more effective for us all to basically look out for each other and go, all right, I'm not going to go out if I think I'm infectious. You can actually supplement that a bit by donating your data, if you like, so that people can be warned. And the other thing is, I think the government has done so well with frightening people about COVID-19 that a lot of people for whom their personal risk level is extremely low are frightened for themselves to go back to anything like normal. So people who are at very low risk are frightened of going back to work. What an app could do is give them a psychological support, make them feel like, okay, well, there is something out there protecting me, if not an actual lockdown, but something out there is helping to reduce my risk of being infected. And maybe if I can upload it on my phone, I'm actually doing something that will probably protect others rather than me, but you know, there's something I can actually do. And so I do slightly feel that part of what an app would do would be a psychological effect, just to make people feel that there is some protection. You're listening to the Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Last week, Equality Secretary Liz Truss announced the government's long-awaited response to its consultation on the Gender Recognition Act. The government had initially proposed speeding up the legal process of changing gender by allowing trans people to self-identify as their preferred gender. Some feminists were concerned this would mean the erosion of women-only spaces, but Trust confirmed that protecting those spaces would be her priority. She also vowed to protect trans children from making irreversible decisions about their bodies. Meanwhile, this week, Freddie McConnell, a trans man who gave birth to a child while still a woman, lost his bid in the appeal court to be named as the child's father on its birth certificate. Ella, do you think these two outcomes show that the tide might be turning against trans activism? I wouldn't get complacent to thinking that this debate is over because the reaction to Liz Truss's statement has been quite extreme. Um, The claims are that what Liz Truss has done is put trans children in danger, has eroded the visibility of trans individuals and so on and so on. But I mean, for most sensible people who are tuned into this debate sympathetically, the issue one of women only spaces, particularly in extreme scenarios like prisons or rape crisis centres, and the issue of children having intervention, medical or otherwise, in relation to their gender, is the one part of this debate there is consensus around that you shouldn't really interfere with children's bodies and that actually protecting places like rape crisis centres is probably a good idea to have it women only. There's a whole range of other parts of this discussion about how far you go to accommodate, as it's called, trans rights or how far you support it. That's totally up for discussion. But most people generally accept that the thing that Liz Truss has said really isn't that extreme and is generally quite sensible. 
But the reaction has been as if she said every trans person should be kicked out of Britain. Mm. So this debate is going to continue. But the reason why this debate is important is because actually reopening this in the way that Liz Truss has done is interesting because number one, let's remember that the Conservatives opened up this can of worms in the first place and were the ones that were not quite a U-turn, but it's a strange change of tack because they were initially the one, the party that was really pushing for changes like this in order to score some kudos points. And it's only when they've realised that actually these kind of changes could make quite a significant difference to many women's lives that they've had to row back on it to the extent that Liz Truss has done. But also in talking about the importance of women-only spaces and especially on the issue of children, it's something that does need to be talked about because this debate isn't going to be resolved until essentially both sides meet somewhere in the middle. Because there was a case in Oxfordshire of a 13-year-old girl bringing legal case claiming that she was feeling put in danger by having to share a changing room with um, a trans individual or someone of the opposite sex. I don't celebrate that fact. I think that's a problem. You know, we shouldn't have girls thinking that they're being put in danger by being in the same room as boys, even if they are or everyone's in their knickers, because that just isn't true. And that's a very bad image to be put on of young men. That's the kind of the radical feminist view that every boy and man poses a danger to a woman. But on the other side is the kind of the complete ignorance of any sensitivities from trans activists that having a girl-only space, as it were, when you're developing through puberty might be quite important for some young women. And so th- this debate has become so fractious that if you are a liberal-minded, free-thinking person, if you take a side either way, you're going to get eaten alive. So th- this debate does have to carry on. And the point that has to be defended is that the small minority of trans rights activists, who are not all trans individuals, have to step back away from this now because most of the public agree that women-only spaces should be defended. And dare I say it, Liz Truss is right on this. Tom, well, I think we've talked about it a fair bit on this podcast before, but it's worth remembering that how different some of the demands that are being made by the trans movement are from kind of, you know, previous kind of liberation struggles. It's of a very different character. Previously, whether it's gay rights, women's rights, you name it, the kind of idea was oftentimes was just asking people to kind of like get out of their way, get out of our business, you know, whereas there's a kind of huge politics of recognition within the trans movement, which is insofar as actually Mm -hmm. trying to redefine spaces like women's spaces without seemingly the say-so of the women already occupying those spaces. But I think in an even more profound way with the question around Freddie McConnell and birth certificates, um, whether that's in terms of who the parent was um, or whether it's in terms of actually trans people wanting to go back and have their their birth certificates altered to make them in line with what they feel to be their gender identity. That's really quite Orwellian because what you're what you're inviting um, society to do and what you're demanding society do is effectively to lie is mm. to rewrite history, is to say that when you were born on a particular date that you were not actually the mother who bore that child or you were not actually the child who was born with a certain set of equipment. You know, that's just historical facts. I think the thing that this has really brought to the fore is the fact that, you know, society can make all kinds of accommodations for people in terms of them wanting to live life as as they see fit. Most people don't really have a problem with that. I think the issue is, is when you're being invited to kind of redefine society around how one particular person views themselves, that not only does it sometimes get people's backs up, because obviously it can involve the breaching of women's spaces, etc., but also it effectively evades what is just fundamentally biological fact. You know, in the midst of this coronavirus crisis, for instance, and Joe Williams makes this point, you know, 
whether or not you're actually born male for all intents and purposes is an important bit of information for your health, if nothing mm. else. You know, I don't imagine that coronavirus, given the fact it tends to skew towards affecting men more severely, that it would necessarily notice the distinction there in relation to people who, who now identify as a different gender. So these things aren't unimportant. But at the same time, recognising that those things are facts and things that do need to be noted and do need to be recorded. It's not to say that we as a society still do not make accommodations and still should not be as liberal and as accepting as possible. It's just to say that you can't, as I say, kind of just redefine society, how we do things, even biological facts, just around the identity of individuals. That's just not how these things can work. The other point is that, especially with the case of Freddie Mulano, is not to be extreme about it, but the I'm worried about the erasure of women um, and the, especially in relation to motherhood, changing that status, which is, it is a status, becoming a mother is something very significant in your life, is really quite wrong. And we've already got shifts in terms of many midwives are being counselled to talk about pregnant people instead of pregnant mothers, you know, erasing that very important part of your uh, route towards motherhood. There's BBC articles out at the moment talking about the devastating effect of coronavirus on trans individuals' access to medicine, which is of course a problem. No stories about the fact that coronavirus has completely wiped out fertility treatment for women, or even there wasn't that much fuss about the fact that abortion services were severely affected by the lockdown. So not to play oppression Olympics here, but there is you do get frustration frustrated by the fact that there is so much discussion about this very small minority of activists and what they're calling for will have implications for half the population of women. So let's get some perspective here. Let's deal with the real issues where people, trans people are being discriminated against. We should all stand up against that injustice. And I think most decent people will, but that doesn't mean essentially at this point now, it feels like erasing women's right to define themselves and define how they organise their lives because of the, at this point, caterwauling of a small minority of people, mainly on social media. You've been listening to The Spiked Podcast. For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.